Paul writes, You will say to me then, Why does he, that is God, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul, throughout the book of Romans, has anticipated the objections to what he's writing. Paul has taught these things many times before. He knows how it goes down. He knows the objections that arise, especially in this book from a Jewish audience. And he's included a lot of these rhetorical questions that seem to draw negative conclusions from what he's saying. And this is similar to that. He says, now I know what you're going to say after what I just said. You're going to say, how is that fair? So let's remind ourselves of what Paul just said. This whole section, Romans 9, 10, and 11, is all about the nation of Israel and how they relate to the church of Jesus Christ. The main premise of what Paul is saying is we've taken the gospel to the world, Messiah has come, and hardly any Jews have gotten saved. But the Gentiles are going for it. The church is filling up with people that don't even know who Moses is, never read their Old Testament. And yet they're going after Jesus. How can that be? Didn't God say that he would save the nation of Israel? Has God's word failed? Of course not. It hasn't failed. And last week he explained why. Because he says God's salvation has always and ever been for a remnant of people. Right? John the Baptist said, just because you are a child of Abraham doesn't mean that you're entitled to anything. God could make this rock into a child for Abraham. So there's that remnant theology. But also, he says that remnant is chosen in God's sovereignty. Just as God handpicked Jacob and not Esau, just as God hardened Pharaoh in his rebellion against the Lord, Paul says it is God who sovereignly chooses those who will be saved. We called this last week the mystery of the elect, because as we live in the day-to-day, it's very hard for us to pick and choose who's wheat and who's a tare. Do you remember that? We talked about this, but God sees that. Now, talking about that, I can see it in some of your eyes already. Here's your objection in verse 19. How is that fair? How is it fair for God to judge people if salvation is predestined? If Pharaoh has hardened his heart to the point where God locks him in, how is it fair for God to judge him if he is locked in by God's sovereignty? And we can react this way in a fleshly human way and and say things like, I think that I deserve as many chances as possible. But I think in most of our cases, our reaction is because of the way the gospel is described elsewhere in Scripture. Right? Go out and preach the gospel to every creature, Jesus said. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whosoever believes in him, shall not perish. These universal calls to salvation, and yet here Paul describes it as the chosen few who are saved. And we say, how is that fair? And today is not going to be the day when we resolve this issue for all time. And we're going to talk about the issues of Free will and the sovereignty of God, predestination and election, and is it possible for someone to walk away from the Lord? And there's much more that could be said on this issue. We're not going to touch every facet of it, and I'll probably leave out your favorite verse when we go through this. And after this is over, I'll probably be thinking, oh, I could have said this and I could have said that. I've been saying it this morning to myself, looking over my notes already. But the most important thing for us today is to gain the right attitude to have in your heart as we discuss these things, as you think about salvation, as you think about how God's will interacts with man's will, this is the right attitude to have that Paul is going to give us. And in fact, as we will see, this passage is a strong rebuke against men and our arrogant questions. 
And Paul is not going to entertain, even for a minute, the idea that God has done something unjust. So that's the objection. How can God still find fault if people are confirmed, they've been hardened in their sins? Well, let's read verses 20 through 21. It might not be the answer you expect. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now we as people, especially as those who have grown up in a democracy who are accustomed to having our voice heard, we read verse 19, how can God still find fault? That's not fair. We see that as a reasonable question. Can I tell you something? It's not. That is not a reasonable question. And Paul uses this, this it's called the vocative form in Greek, by saying, oh man. It's a direct address. Who are you, oh man, oh human being, oh created one who was molded out of the dust of the earth and breathed into by the Lord? Who are you to answer back to God? Don't you talk back to the Lord, Paul is saying. He reminds us of our creaturely status. Whatever our privileges may be as Christians, we are still creatures. We were made. We did not exist, and now we do. And if we're not for the Lord's constant sustaining hand, we would cease to exist. So the idea that we can ask questions like that of the Lord is simply inappropriate. Paul doesn't do anything yet to answer the question or to resolve the tension that he's introduced. He just reminds us that you have no right to question God. You don't like it when people question things that are not their business, do you? You don't like it when people tell you how you ought to be raising your kids that you've never met before. Anybody ever been out in the grocery store and somebody comes up and cares to comment on your parenting? Yeah, it's not a, it's not a fun situation, is it? Or when a teacher oversteps her bounds with your kids or a coach for your son, maybe. I mean, I think we're all, we're all Southern people in here. We don't like it when people try to tell us what to do. Like a lot of our politics amounts to, would you just leave us alone? <laughs> Let us do our own thing? So imagine that, but now let's think about this from God's perspective. This world is God's. He made it. Everything that was, was God until he made the world, which was not God. It is possessed and owned by him. He created it. He made it. He sustains it. He put it together. And for us to then turn to him and say, how dare you? Parents, you've probably said things to your children when they've responded to you like that, about like this. How dare you talk to me that way? He compares us to clay, that God is the potter who molds us and shapes us, and that he has total rights over the things he has made, which means you and me. God has absolute authority over you. This potter and clay metaphor, you better turn over to Jeremiah 18 with me. This is a very common illustration used in the Old Testament. Isaiah loved it, and Jeremiah has a great example here. We're going to turn to Jeremiah chapter 18, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 10, where God was giving the same illustration to Jeremiah that Paul is using in Romans chapter 9. And you can tell how he's using these Old Testament passages, because remember, he's addressing the status of Israel related to the church. So this is a very Jewish section of Scripture, a very Old Testament section of of the New Testament. So let's read verse 3 through 10 of Jeremiah 18. Now let's just start from verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. 
Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. If you've ever tried to make pots, you know that that's a rather common thing, that it just doesn't work. We're trying to make it go one way, and it didn't. So he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. I was going to make a vase. wasn't going that way, so now it's an ashtray. <laughs> that's how all my art projects ended up, you know. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. So God gives this illustration to Jeremiah. The potter was making something, it wasn't working, so he reformed the clay into a, a lump and made something else out of it. And God is trying to communicate to them, I am the potter, you are the clay. Judah was in utter spiritual rebellion against the Lord. He was about to send Babylon to destroy them. And what he's communicating through this image is, I know I made promises to you through Moses, but don't you dare for a minute think that I owe you anything if you're going to walk in rebellious sin. I'm under no obligation to protect you when you walk in rebellion. That, in fact, was the covenant that God had made with them in Deuteronomy. I have set before you death and life. So choose you. Which one are you going to do? So these people were saying, yes, we're full of sin. Yes, we're doing evil things. But you know what? We're God's chosen people. He can't touch us. And God goes, I'm the potter and you are the clay. I can do whatever I please. Isaiah 29, 16, same thing. says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should save its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed, save him who formed it, he has no understanding. Isaiah 45 verse 9 is a very similar verse. You can read it in your own time. What's going on in, in Paul's passage? The Jews here could not handle God's inclusion of the Gentiles at an equal status with them. Not only that, at greater numbers than them. It seemed like all the Jews in the synagogues were falling away and wanting nothing to do with Messiah Jesus. And yet here come this massive rush of Gentiles. And they're like, that's not fair, because God promised that we were the chosen ones and that they were on the outside. Now, yeah, God might save one or two, but not in this kind of proportion. And Paul comes in and says, God can save whomever he pleases. And God owes you nothing because you're all walking in rebellion. You killed the Messiah. Don't come to me and tell me that God owes us salvation by the Messiah that you crucified. Our issue is a little different. We're uncomfortable with the idea of God choosing anybody. Because we like to, you know, we like that, that poem, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. God can't tell me what to do. Oh, yes, he can, my friend. To question God in such a way is entirely inappropriate. To come to the Lord and stick your finger in his face. Who are you, oh man? Who do you think you are? So before we can understand anything about salvation, and we're going to move on and, and address some of these things, but you need to start by recognizing Creator God's right to do whatever He pleases in anything. 
And we're not going to say, well, God couldn't do that. There is no couldn't with God unless we're talking about matters of sin. For He is righteous God, and we are unrighteous men. So to come in and demand where God must demonstrate His grace is to misunderstand it entirely. So Paul starts by saying, sit down and listen. This is, this is God's grace, and He's able to apply it how He likes. You are just the clay pot, and God is the potter. Verse 22 through 24, back in Romans chapter 9, if you're not there already. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So here's a rhetorical question that Paul is using to establish God's sovereignty. And it begins by saying, what if, and it never gets to a then but this is kind of how we talk. You, you might add a so at the beginning of this question. Right? It says, has the potter no right over the clay? Verse 22, so what if God? As in, who are you to raise any kind of objection against how God has done things? And this is kind of a tricky sentence to break down because it's, it's got a lot of layers here, but I think the main sense is pretty obvious. The operating verb is endured. This is the main verb of this sentence, meaning God put up with sinners with great patience. Hasn't he? But we look around and we wonder why God takes so long to judge sinners. Say, so, Lord, come on, now is the time to smite somebody. God has endured with great patience. Now, why would he do that? He says, desiring to show his judgment. And this is, is understood differently. This can either be understood as, even though he desired to show his judgment, he was patient. Or he can say, because he desired to show his judgment, he was patient. I'm inclined to think it's the, it's the former, that God was ready to show his wrath and his judgment, but he delayed. Why would he delay? Why would he show great patience to those that were under wrath? Because the purpose was in order to make known the riches of his glory for those who will be saved. Why would God allow sinners to keep on sinning and allow such evil to ravage the world? Because God wanted to demonstrate his glory and His grace for those whom He would save, those whom He has foreknown from before the foundations of the world, that He might demonstrate to them not just His glory, but also His wrath and His judgment. This makes all of human history a demonstration by God of the fullness of Himself. Remember we talked about the Exodus? We talked about how God could have just saved Israel and said, I'm your God now. But instead, He allowed them to go through 400 years of suffering and slavery. And then he came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, knowing full well that Pharaoh was not going to let them go. And then God locked his heart into place and poured out ten plagues upon them and then brought them out and then allowed Pharaoh to chase after them and parted the Red Sea and collapsed the waters back upon them. Why? God was telling a story. God was pressing upon the world who he is, his nature, his glory, his power. He was teaching Israel not just his salvation, but also his wrath and judgment against sin. And it's all well and good to hand people a book that says God is good, but God is also just. That's fine. But God chose to do it in such a way that would make us never forget. Telling such an amazing story. What Paul's getting at here is that history itself is that same kind of story. That when we are in eternity forever and we look back on how God handled the world, we will remember first his grace and his mercy for us. Think We do this now. We think about who we were. I didn't deserve any of that. 
I didn't deserve I was a, I was rotten. And God saved me. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he glorious? But we'll also remember that final day of judgment where the Lord poured out his wrath upon those that persisted in rebellion against him. And we'll remember, yes, he is kind, but isn't he also just? And isn't his wrath glorious and terrible? And we will have this pressed upon our hearts for eternity because of what God did in time. This is why God has done it this way. And as we see in John 17, 3, this is eternal life. Let's take a minute and apply this. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus says, yes, eternal life, you're going to live forever, but you know what's going to make it wonderful is to know God and to know Jesus Christ. People walk around. Well, you can hear that, and that sounds so cheap initially. You say, what? So God did all that just so that we could know more about him? Well, yes. Is there anything more valuable than knowing God? People walk around all day singing sad songs about what's life all about? Why can't somebody tell me what happens next? What, what, none of this makes sense. Where is God? But to know that, there's nothing worth more than that. That's true eternal life. We'll go on forever and ever and ever, but it would be awful boring if you didn't have the Lord God himself there with you. Eternity is going to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to know God, and nothing shows God more clearly than the gospel. We do not get the character of God any better than looking at Jesus Christ on the cross. The wrath and judgment of God poured out upon sin, but sin upon His own Son, because He took it Himself in His grace and His love and His mercy. This is what God has done. Now, this is kind of a hypothetical question that Paul is asking, but I still think this is true. What if the world is just God's storybook for eternity? Look back on what's been done. Look back at what I did. Isn't it glorious? And we sit and shift in our seats and say, I don't know about that. But Paul's whole point is, so what if God did that? It's his world. He can do it that way. So I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not asking that you be comfortable with it. Just that you acknowledge that God has the right to do that because he made this world this way. God is patient. That's what he's doing. He's patient for people who deserve and will eventually go to hell. Why? Because there might still be some who will believe. And we get angry. Why would God let this person who, who keeps driving drunk down the streets and crashing into people, this person that's murdering these people, why does God allow this world full of hurricanes and tornadoes and famine? God goes, because there's still folks that might be saved. God is working out his salvation through this life. And it's all going to demonstrate his wondrous glory, who he is, the knowledge of God, the most valuable thing of all. And if you have a problem with that, well, who are you to question God in his own universe? Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The world, everything in it, and everybody in it is the Lord's. And if we have a problem with the way he applies his grace, whether you're saying, no, you must judge now, you must judge these people now, or you're not just. A lot of atheists do that. The atheists, people don't believe in God, get rather angry at God, don't they? Somebody said once that atheists are so angry, and the thing they're angry about the most is that they're angry at God for not existing. And they say, well, God has to stop this stuff. It's like, well, God is showing patience. And we say, well, why doesn't he show more patience to more people? Listen, every single person in this world is a sinner. And God can show as much or as little patience as he desires, and it is still just and right. Verse 25 now. 
As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and like Gomorrah. So Paul here quotes from the Old Testament again in order to support what he just said. What is he proving? Number one, he's proving that God will sovereignly elect Gentiles to be saved, not just Jews, and also that it will only be a remnant of Jews who will be saved. He's laying out the fact, first of all, God can do whatever he wants, what we've been up to so far. Second of all, this is what God always promised was going to happen. First, he quotes from Hosea, chapter 2, verse 23, and then chapter 1, verse 10. And these are, these are loose quotations. Paul is quoting them like a preacher quotes them, kind of from memory, kind of off the cuff. Half my quotations come from the New King James. The other half come from the ESV, right? And uh, Paul quotes from the Septuagint, the Greek version here. So if you open your Old Testament sometimes and the translation doesn't quite line up with the New, that's probably why. But if you know the story of Hosea, you'll know it's a crazy one. If you've ever thought to yourself, well, God would never ask me to do this or that, you need to read the book of Hosea. God commanded Hosea, his prophet, to marry a harlot. This is a woman of harlotry, and whether that was her profession or it was just her disposition, it hardly matters. And she, of course, cheats on him, and off she goes. And she has children, and it seems to be clear by, by innuendo from the story that these were not all Hosea's children. first one is named Jezreel. Jezreel, which means to scatter, or it can mean to sow. Because he says, I'm going to scatter my people Israel. The next one was Loruhamah. This was his daughter. And it means no mercy or even unloved. I'd like to name your daughter unloved. Because God is saying, I'm not going to show any more mercy or love to these people. It's time for judgment to come. And the last one was Loami, his son, which means not my people. You could just about read in that story that Hosea names this kid not my son. Because it probably wasn't his son these symbolic names, and the Lord says, I'm going to pour out wrath upon Israel. I'm going to scatter my people. I'm going to show them no more mercy, and they're not going to be my people. But as you read Hosea, what happens is there is an incredible reversal of these names, and this is the hope that they're looking for. Hosea 2.23 says, Then I will sow her for myself in the land. The name Jezreel just means to scatter, but also can mean to scatter like scattering seeds. So Hosea, the Lord through Hosea, flips the sense of it. Instead of scattering you all over the world, I'm going to scatter you like seed in the land and have you plant again. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So there was terrible judgment coming upon God's people. And there was. Assyria ravaged the country. But God always promised that there would be a remnant that would grow into a mighty nation again. There's going to be scatterings. There's going to be times where I'm not showing you mercy, but I'm showing you wrath. But there's always going to be a time of restoration. And it also, although the Hosea passage refers to Israel, and I think that is primarily what Paul's getting at here, I think there's a secondary sense that he's quoting the not my people to prove that God can, in fact, call those who are not his people, as in Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, 
Anglo-Saxons, Africans, Chinese, doesn't matter. God can call whoever He likes. Secondly, from Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22 and 23, and then from Isaiah 1, verse 9. This is the second set of quotations. These are concerning the remnant of Israel. And Paul quotes these pretty, pretty directly. This was during the Assyrian invasion. Now, Isaiah was prophesying to the southern kingdom. Hosea prophesied to the north, and the north got scattered. The southern kingdom would endure the Assyrian invasion. The, the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, would be scattered across the world by the Assyrians. And Judah survived only in Jerusalem. The Assyrians marched in on their land, penned them in into the capital city, and held them under siege for years until God directly intervened to set them free. So Isaiah, it says, even though there's so many, sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved, which is exactly what happened in that story. Only a remnant of Israel was left. And this is also a bigger picture than just this invasion. God is saying, there's so many of you. But when Messiah comes, I know only a few of you are going to believe. So Paul is quoting these Old Testament passages to affirm in this passage more the right of God. That this is what God has done, has the right to do, and will continue to do. And even he says this remnant, in verse 29, he said, If the Lord had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Our sins were just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah got full and utter destruction, but the Lord reserved offspring for us in Babylon. Saying, so this wasn't because we deserved to be saved, because God showed his love to us, his unmerited favor towards us, and left us a remnant. This is the important thing to know, that this, this idea of God choosing some and not choosing others, there is nobody who was deserving and somehow did not get chosen. It's all grace. The Bible does not talk about God creating people and then saying, all right, this one for hell, this one for heaven. God created people and they all sinned. So they all were in the hell category. And God sent his son Jesus to reach out and save as many as he could. And that's what we call the elect. And if God had not left us offspring, this world would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God saved people like you and me, even though we did not deserve it. I certainly didn't. So Paul has established what through these verses here? God's word to Israel has not failed. The fact that only a few Jews are getting saved is not proof that God's word to them has failed. It was only ever a remnant that was going to be saved. Paul tells us to expect a Jewish remnant until chapter 11 when he explains what comes next. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. And number three, that God may include Gentiles because, you could say this is point four, salvation is under his sovereign control. And if you don't like it, it ain't your world, buddy. It's God's world. You are the clay. He is the potter. And when we read this, it's, it's hard and it's sobering. But it reminds me of Job, the end of the book of Job. If you know the story, Job was a righteous, godly man. He was a wealthy man. He had lots of kids. He had lots of money. He was well-respected. Satan comes to the Lord and says, You're, he only serves you because you've given him a bunch of stuff. You take it all away and he'll curse you. And then he says, you afflict his body and he'll curse you. Job never finds that out. Did you know that? You read that story. Job never finds out what happened. All he knows is that one day he has everything and the next day it's gone. And as far as he knows, he didn't do anything wrong. And then there's this long back and forth in the book of Job, which is even to me to now hard to understand. 
Because he's get these counselors that come and say, God only punishes wicked people, which is kind of the common wisdom of the day. But Job is, is sort of the fly in the ointment saying, yeah, right, wicked people prosper all the time, and good people like me get beaten down. And they get all of how could you say something like that, Job? He goes, just look around you. He says, if God was here right now, I would, I would stand before God and say, you shouldn't have done that, it wasn't right. And then God shows up. And God says, who is this who thinks he knows what's going on? And in Job 42, I'm going to read these six verses. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The Lord had said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hey, just remember sometimes there are some things that are too wonderful for you. The Lord had said, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What's the lesson that Job had to learn? He had done nothing wrong, but he had to learn that he didn't get the full picture. He didn't know that there was a heavenly contest going on between the Lord and Satan, and that the Lord would use that story to encourage his church for generation after generation. All he knew is that he had lost everything, and he questioned God, and God steps in and says, I know everything, Job. I know everything. I know when the fawns are born in the woods. I know where the snow comes from. Do you know any of that? No, you don't. So don't you dare question me. Our little minds dare not question God, who is always good and always wise. And you can take comfort in that. God is always good. You're not. If you were always good, that's a terrible thing to think about, isn't it? If we only ever did what was just and right, and we never showed mercy, never showed kindness, we only ever showed exactly what people deserved, well, that's a fearful thing, isn't it? You don't even know if I want to meet a person like that. But because God is also love, you can rest in that. God is eternally wise. You're not. You look at somebody's life and you think you know exactly what's going on in their heart. You don't. The Lord does. How can God not choose that person? And God goes, you have no idea what that person is like. How could God save them? God goes, how could I save you? What are you asking questions for? Salvation is by grace. It is in God's hands, not ours. And this is what this passage teaches us. You must never forget that. And even as you strive to reconcile what seem to be two extremes in the scriptures, you come at it with an attitude of humility, recognizing you don't get everything, and that God has the freedom to do whatever he likes with his world. Amen? Okay. So that is that passage preached in context. Now that we have the proper attitude, I hope, which is that we are humble, dust and ashes before the Lord. And now that we've studied this passage in context, and I hope that we've gotten the message, I want to take the remainder of our time, I want to pull back, and I want to take a look at the broader issues related to election and salvation in the Bible. So I don't want to minimize anything that I just said. I, we've just looked at this passage. Now we're going to look at maybe how can we balance or resolve some of what the entirety of Scripture teaches. Because we need to first of all acknowledge, and I don't know that there's any debate on this, that there is tension in the Bible between the sovereignty of God and the will of man. We just read a passage that is all sovereignty. But then we just referenced John 3.16 where Jesus said, Whosoever believes shall not perish. There's a verse in John, in fact, that I want to read. John 6.37 
I love this because I don't know if there's any one verse in Scripture that encapsulates this tension more than this verse right here. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There you go. That's sovereignty of God. All that the Father gives. But let's read the second half. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes. If anybody comes, there's a universal call. Whoever comes, I will never cast out. And I've heard half of this verse preached in two different contexts before. Well, only the ones that the Lord gives to Jesus will come. And then I've heard lots of evangelistic messages that whoever comes to the Lord, he will in no wise cast out. Well, they're both true. There are verses that describe salvation solely in terms of God and his will from eternity past. We just read some of them. He's the potter, we are the clay. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about the Lamb of God slain from before the foundations of the world that he might draw us to himself whom he foreknew and predestined. We read about that in chapter 8, right? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And then there are verses that provide universal calls to salvation and admonitions to persevere. The Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, depending on what side of that line you fall on, you might panic a little bit at that verse. And you can't handle a verse like that. Read about in Hebrews, where he talks about those that have partaken of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ and yet walked away. And if you are heavy into the sovereignty thing, you don't even think that's possible. Yet there it is in your scriptures. I mean, every place where the Bible tells us to go out and preach the gospel, it says go preach to everybody. Anybody who believes. And each of these makes sense in context. If you want to just look at Romans 9, no problem. But you want to lay Romans 9 up against the book of Acts, for example, becomes rather difficult. Because we must maintain both of these truths in their entirety. We must. For example, there are those that look at this passage in Romans chapter 9, and they just kind of wish it wasn't there and they ignore it. They kind of pretend like Paul never said that. And if he did, he probably didn't mean like what it sounds like he's saying. And then there are others where this is the passage on salvation. And everything else must bow down to this passage. And if it doesn't seem to be saying exactly the same thing, then we can chuck it. Because this is clearly, that's called having a canon within a canon. And that's not good. God gave us an entirety of scripture. There is no single, this is the passage. No, no, no. God gave you a whole Bible. And he, God loves to say two complementary things, like 105% each, to the point where they seem irreconcilable, and yet we know that they're not. Let me just start by saying this. If your position on the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of man negates the other, meaning if your belief in the sovereignty of God makes it so that it doesn't matter what people do, then you're out of balance. And if your belief in the will of man makes it so that predestination is basically a dead word, then you're also out of balance. People will come to me and say, do you believe in predestination? I know what they mean when they say that. What they mean is, are you a Calvinist? But the simple question, answer is yes, because it's in the Bible. The question is not, is it real, but how do we understand it? Do you understand the difference? It's important to, to get this. Because imbalance on either one of these issues leads to excess. Imbalance leads to excess. If you focus to, on the sovereignty of God and the election of God to the exclusion of the necessary response in faith of men, any number of things can happen. You can become calloused. I'll tell you, those that, that really dive in 
to the sovereignty of God and they don't have Christian love with it, they're some of the hardest, meanest people you'll meet. Because they believe that not, ultimately nothing you do really matters. It's all God. And in that, in that sense, you've made God exclusively a tyrant that picks and chooses which, who's going to go to hell and who's going to go to heaven. And, it, and it's all arbitrary and it doesn't mean anything. So they become that kind of person. You become a hard, angry person. Or you become full of pride because I can accept truths that the rest of you peasants can't. Or you can even claim things like, Jesus didn't die for everybody. And that's a real position. And there's all kinds of logical leaps. Well, if only the elect are going to be saved, how are you going to say that Jesus' death was useless for certain people? I'm saying that Jesus died for everybody and not everyone will be saved. Phrase it however you like. He's the propitiation for our sins and not just for ours only, but also for the whole world. Those are excesses. But let's go the other way. You focus too much on free will and you become frantic. You become anxious, you become stressed, because it all depends on you. I know great godly people that have come to the end of their lives. They've, all the things the Bible says, they've washed the feet of the saints. They've ministered unto the Lord. They've been in church their whole lives. They've preached, they've raised godly children, and they're lying on their deathbed scared to death because they're afraid they might have missed something. How, how terrible is that? Or you can start to claim things like, God doesn't guard you in your salvation. So you better watch out. If you sin, you better repent. You don't repent of that sin right away. You might forget to repent for it, and then you're, you're done for eternity. Really? The blood of Jesus is, is dependent upon me remembering all the bad things that I've done? Those are two excesses from two imbalances. And way too often, we're holding on to slogans rather than what the Scripture says. And usually these slogans are biblical. They come out of something the Bible says. But we let that be what we believe in rather than the rather complex and difficult to understand truth of the scripture. Instead of holding Christian love and humility, you know, and, and I, I will say in all kindness and charity that those who, who call themselves Calvinists tend to do this more than those who call themselves Armenians. They say, if you don't hold to these doctrines, you're not even saved. If you don't hold to the doctrines of Calvin as exposited by all the guys that came after that, all great men of God who probably would be shocked to hear you say this, then you're not a Christian. If you don't hold to the doctrine of reprobation and double predestination, you're not saved. You can't be saved. You almost wonder why they bother if you believe it that hard, because I was predestined to believe it, wasn't I? Not every person in that category falls into that. Not every Armenian believes that they've got to earn their salvation. They're great godly men on either side. George Whitfield was a Calvinist. John Wesley was an Armenian. And they were both partners in ministry. And they both were used mightily of the Lord Jesus Christ. My favorite illustration, I love this, and I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it's great, is uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley were out ministering together. And they both kneel down to pray. And George Whitfield prays a short prayer and gets in bed. And John Wesley sees him only praying a short while. And he goes, my dear Whitfield, is this where your Calvinism has brought you? And he stays up all night praying, praying, praying. And then the next morning, George Whitfield wakes up and John Wesley has fallen asleep at the side of his bed while he was praying. And he wakes him up and says, my dear Wesley, is this where your Arminianism has brought you? Second Peter 3.16 says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Any amens on that one? which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. All kinds of people that want to take half of the Bible and make that the most important thing 
and take the rest of it and explain it away. Sometimes we can do like theological algebra. Like, I've got four verses and you've got three, and these three cancel out, so my one wins in the end. No, <laughs> that's not how it works. What is much easier, and I, could, I don't want to get off on this, is what's called the via negativa, which is it's much easier to say what the Bible is not saying sometimes than it is to come out and say what it actually is. Is it saying that it doesn't matter how I live my life? Well, of course not. Is it saying that you can lose your salvation like you lose your car keys? Of course not. So I'm going to offer you the way that I think is the best way to understand this. This helps me. And I, I think that this has been explained by other, other teachers, but maybe never quite the way that I've put it. So, you know, chew on it, pray about it, and think about it. I think the best way to understand the tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man is to view life itself as the mechanism of God's will. Let me explain what I mean by that. God has a sovereign plan that passages like Romans 9 and Ephesians chapter 1 talk about in terms of inevitability. Who can resist his will? We just read that, right? He's the potter, we are the clay. That's God's sovereign plan, his celestial perspective on the earth. But that's not where you and I live. We live in a day-to-day -day life that is full of choices, it's full of alternatives, it's full of could be, full of could have been. And that is where most of the Bible spends its time. Calling us to live in the moment, calling us to believe, calling us to pray, calling us to obey the Lord. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, the same one that wrote Romans 9, says, I discipline my body and beat it into submission to make it obey Christ, lest I be disqualified as a preacher. Paul, the one that believed in the sovereignty of God as much or more than anybody else, says, I'm beating my body to do what needs to be done. Because he lives in the now. I believe that God's means of actualizing his will is through the hurly-burly of our daily lives. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we can speak of it in terms of instantaneous action. God chose somebody. That seems very unfair. Because we say, well, you just pick, reach in the crowd and pick them. But the process of choosing, the process of bringing somebody to salvation takes place throughout a person's life. God meets us in the right now to bring about his will for us. That God steps in and, and rather than, all right, you, 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 and you, God finds you and you, you learn of the gospel as a young child. Maybe you even wander for a while, but the Holy Spirit brings you back until finally you get on your knees and you believe in the Lord Jesus. And you thought it was all you, but as you grow, you begin to realize, no, that was God coming after me. And God brings the right people into your life at the right time and the right word that confirm you in this until the end of your life when you've been faithful, maybe even unto death. That is God's election. Wasn't that God just in the moment said, yes, God was there every step of the way. And I don't believe this is mere appearance, by the way. God is not, as I say so much, the force. God does not just sit there, you know, beaming up certain people and not beaming up others. God is a person. God is persons, actually. He condescends, I believe, to act in time. Your prayers matter, for example. Well, God already decided what he was going to do. God told you to pray. Well, God's going to save who he's going to save. God told you to repent and believe and be baptized. In the end, we'll be able to look at time as just a moment, but it's not that, as the Bible shows. So the Bible speaks of things like predestination and election, but such things are brought about through the daily life that we live. God's going to save this person. How is he going to save them? Is he going to reach down and grab them by the scruff of the neck? 
He's going to send a Christian to preach the gospel to them. He's going to use that Christian to encourage them and maybe even to defend the faith and use some apologetics a little bit. The Holy Spirit is going to draw him. He's going to have those thoughts that he can't quite shake. And then they're going to come down the aisle in response to an altar call. And they're going to say, wow, look at how God sovereignly chose that person. But in the moment, that person's evangelism absolutely mattered. That preacher speaking out boldly and calling them to be saved mattered. The drawing of the Holy Spirit, that's how the Lord leads people to salvation. You can talk about that like an instantaneous thing, but it's not. Jesus said, when the Son of Man is raised up, I will draw all men to myself. The Holy Spirit is working on hearts. The discipline of Christians. You can say, oh, perseverance of the saints, you know, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's not how the Bible puts it. The Bible says, get down and get to work. Persevere. Paul said, if by any means necessary, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul goes, I am fighting tooth and nail to achieve this salvation. Oh, you don't achieve salvation, Paul. You know, it's, the saints will persevere till the end. Paul goes, whatever. My life is in my hands, and I'm doing everything I can to follow Jesus. And I think that it's not just, oh, it's, it's daily life against the sovereignty of God. I think God works out his sovereignty through your daily life. This is how God makes it happen. I don't believe it's mere appearance, as I said. This is how God made the world. God wanted a world full of people doing things. And there are those that, that say, well, yeah, but it was, it was all written ahead of time. You know what? In some ways it was. But the Bible spends most of its time talking about it like it's happening right now. And as far as you and I are aware, it's happening right now. And I think as far as the Lord himself condescends to act in the world he's made, it's happening right now. So we can talk about these things from a heaven's eye theological perspective, but we're living in the right now. And I think right now matters. If you believe that way, this approach enables you to embrace the best and avoid the worst of each tendency. For example, you can accept the sovereignty of God's assurance of salvation. That the Lord has got me in his hands and he will never cast me out, Jesus said. That neither life nor death nor principalities nor powers nor any created thing will be able to pluck us out of God's hand. It also allows us to accept those who focus on the responsibility of men, the importance of fervent devotion to Christ. Say, no, I must give my mornings over to the Lord every day. I must abstain from sin. I must forgive. I must love my brothers. I must study my word and pray and worship and spend every day drawing closer to Jesus Christ. Because that's what perseverance looks like. It also allows us to reject the defeatism that certain of those who hold to a Calvinist position hold. They say, ah, what's going to be is going to be, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. And we walk around, maybe I'm not really saved. Who knows on that final day? God just does things his own way, and my measly efforts don't have anything to do with it. But it also allows us to avoid the insecurity that comes from those that hold to a strong Arminian position. I know I've believed in Jesus, and I've confessed with my mouth, and I've done all this, but, but what if I mess up too bad? And I'll be gone. What, what, if, uh, what if I forgot something? What if I'm, you know, the last thing I do in life is to cut somebody off on the freeway and get angry and yell at them and then I get in a car accident and die. I'm, am I still saved? You can avoid those things. You can hold on to the best and the worst because they're both biblical. And the Bible teaches against or for all those things. And you've got to be able to hold to all of them. Look at Ezekiel 33. I love this passage. Ezekiel 33 verses 10 through 11. 
Lord said, you son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Hear the despair. Our sin is finally caught up with us. And the Lord's got to judge us. There's not a whole lot we can do about it. And, you know, that's the end. That, that's that, that improper emphasis that comes from focusing on the sovereignty of God. But look what the Lord says. The Lord who has called and predestined and glorified. Look at what he says to them. He says, say to those people, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God's poured out his wrath upon us, and we're destined for hell and judgment. God goes, well, if you recognize that, why not repent and be saved? Well, God's going to do what God's going to do. God has told you to repent. God has told you to get to work. God's going to save who's going to save. But God said, go and preach the gospel and make disciples. Well, we can never know who's going to be saved until that final day. But the Lord told you to evaluate people's fruit so you can admonish one another. Well, those who are saved are going to persevere and, and God's going to see to it and there's nothing I can do about it. The Lord says, do everything within your power to secure and lay hold of your salvation. Paul says, I lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. Understanding God's sovereignty, as we read today, is to teach us humility. That it is God's world, and it's God's salvation, and it's God's church, and it's all His grace. But it's not to cause us to check out. Well, if God's doing it all, I don't have to do anything. That's not what the Bible says. Well, logically, no. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And knowing that you have a responsibility before the Lord to receive his salvation and to persist in righteousness should not teach you to panic. Oh no, what if I don't get saved at the end? What if I forget? What if I fail? What if I don't read my Bible every day this week? There are those that their, their love for Jesus and their joy goes up and down like, like a thermometer, depending on whether or not they've done something good that week. That's not right. But it should teach us to get in the game. And to take it seriously, to take your holiness seriously, to take your spiritual gifts seriously, to take the call to ministry seriously. Because we are theologically aware of God's celestial perspective. But the Bible is a right now kind of book, isn't it? And it talks to us like this life matters, because it does. Because the life that you're living is what God is using to work out His sovereign will. And as we look around, we know that there is nobody who deserves salvation that is going to hell. And there is nobody that deserves hell that is going to heaven except by the grace of Jesus Christ. Live this life like it matters because it does. That's how I think is the best way to, to understand these things and to hold them in tension. That God is working on His sovereign purposes, but the means He's using is your life. And your choices and your prayers and your obedience matter. But you must always keep in the back of your mind and even the forefront of your mind that God is sovereign. And God is over all of it. So to wrap all this up, what we've read from Romans 9 is that God has predestined those whom he will save and he's hardened those whom he will not. But the Bible talks over and over again, and Paul will himself, even next week, I believe, depending on how far we get, that salvation is available to everybody. There's nobody whom the blood of Jesus cannot reach, even though there are some that it will not reach. And we do not know at what stage of the story each person is. Oh, there's no way that guy can be saved. Yeah, that's what they thought about Paul when he was on his way to Damascus, right? Or we think, oh, there's no way that guy could fall. But unfortunately, godly men and women fall every day. 
It is God's heart for all to be saved, which is why it had to be by grace through faith alone. Because if it was based on anything else, on works or bloodline, it would never have happened. There would have been those that were naturally excluded. God goes, I'm going to open it up for everybody. All you must do is bow the knee, repent, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, full knowing that there are those that are so bound up in their pride that they'll never do it. But the Lord goes, but this way I can offer it freely. And if you are concerned, what if, I'm not, what if I'm not predestined? Well, come to the Lord today and be saved. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And if you're a Christian, well, what if I don't persevere to the end? Well, persevere then. Double down. Give everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. Find out the things that are weighing you down and cut them off, Hebrews says. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away laying aside every hindrance to follow Christ. And if you're concerned about somebody you know that you think might not be chosen, you don't know until that person is crossed over into eternity. You get out there and you preach the gospel to them. You bring the knowledge of God's grace to their life. You get on your knees and intercede for them because those are the things that God uses to draw and to save and to confirm people. I'm convinced that there are those that God allows to be put onto their deathbed because he knows that's the only thing that will enable them to really think about their life. We can get really cynical and say, ah, deathbed conversion, that's because the person is scared to death. Yeah, exactly. That's why I got saved. I'm scared to death of death. And sometimes we don't take the time to think about it, but God will lay somebody out and there they are on their bed and they realize, I've got, I've got three days to live. What is my life? And the Holy Spirit can start working on him. This is truly a mystery to ponder in all of its aspects. And I know that the main emphasis today was, who are you, O oh man, to question God? Ultimately, this passage should put us in our place to ponder the power and the glory of God, which is demonstrated in his compassion for the elect as well as his wrath for the wicked. And it should also cause you to get up and do the work of the Lord because you're the one he wants to use to bring those things about.